The following Dharma talk was given by Maureen Jisho Ford. Jisho is a senior student in the Mountains and Rivers Order and a retired social worker with the Ulster County Department of Mental Health. She began practicing at the monastery in 1985. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, please visit us online at zmm.org. Thanks for listening. It's wonderful to see you all, especially you, Sean. I can't wait for your first talk. Hopefully it will have pictures and slides, <laughs> I hope. Anyway, welcome home, welcome home. Now the house is full. So um, usually I don't have a problem giving a talk. Talking in public doesn't make me anxious. Um, but this topic um, is very difficult for me, this, this talk. And um, the reason it's difficult is because I'm right in the middle of what I'm talking to you about. So you really can't trust that you're going to get full information here. You're going to get someone struggling in the middle of this. And the topic, this was not the topic I originally chose. Uh, I think the topic I was going to talk on was no one's coming to save you. But the topic of this talk is shame. And um, so I had already written that other talk and was ready to go with that other talk. And then um, life happened, as it always has one to do. And um, in the last couple of weeks, I've uncovered a multitude of um, issues that I thought I had resolved, and to some degree, they were resolved, but they come up again in a different form. And, and so I wanted to uh, talk about it, not as an expert, but as someone who's swimming like crazy, or maybe I'm just floating there, I don't know what I'm doing, but anyway. Um, so, and to our Shuso, <laughs> you will say some words tomorrow that I hope I'd never have to utter again, but I have to utter them right now. Uh, where is it? Uh, uh, being immature and insufficient in training. I never expected to present this talk. So the first thing I want to say about shame is that in Buddhism, it is, it is regarded as the moral compass. Um, and my understanding of that is that um, it's very important in Buddhism because it's the alarm bell, I guess, that goes off when we've done something to be ashamed of. And um, I got a little confused with that because when I spoke with Shugan about it, uh, we were talking a different language. I was talking like therapy and he was talking Buddhism and I got confused. So, because I said I wanted to talk about um, the difference be shame, between shame and guilt and um, regret. Uh, I think I got it straight now that if I don't, please, please clean up on aisle four right away. You know, if, I'm, if I get it wrong, I don't want to be doing teaching bad dharma here or whatever. So, okay, so I think I got that straight that, that shame is the, uh, the Buddhist uh, moral comp compass, and I think it's not just the Buddhist moral compass, 
I think we've all got one. Well, some of us aren't working so well, though. Um, and I think I would, well, never mind, I'm not going to go there. Um, okay, so, so the basic fundamental difference from, between um, guilt and shame is it's very simple. Guilt is I did something bad that I shouldn't have done, and I have regret for it. Shame is I am no good. So guilt, I did something wrong. There's infinite possibilities there to make amends, to turn it around, to do good. I'm bad, you know, I stink, you know, all the terrible, terrible words that we say to ourselves. Um, so, you know, sometimes, I, you can't even articulate it at times. It's, my experience is, you know, I think I've got it dealt with, and the next thing I know, it's like this poison that, that seeps in. And, um, you know, you don't see the poisoner, you don't, you don't hear the words necessarily. It happens, and you're being exposed to shame. You're being shamed, um, and you don't even realize it. Um, so we kind of brought this to a head for me, a couple of things all coming down at once. Um, I want to thank Hogan, um, Sensei Hogan, Hogan Sensei, for taking time to talk with me uh, on the phone is very grateful. I'm not sure this is what we talked about, but it's related. It's related. Um, so this this kind of started with a conversation I had with Hogan Sensing, and then went off on a, a, a path that was quite different. So last week I bumped into a bodhisattva when I went to the doctors. When you're my age, you're always going to a doctor. One day, one day it's this doctor, another day it's that doctor. But you go to a lot of doctors. And this was the orthopedic fellow who's going to replace my hip eventually, like soon, after the new year, I hope. And um, I'm getting out of the elevator to find his office, and um, there's this, I don't know, maybe he was in his 50s, possibly 60s, very nice, young, he's young to me, man. And um, he said something, and I said something back to him. I don't remember what it was but it was a self-deprecating comment about me. Probably had to do with my age. And he looked at me, he turned around and said to me, no, you're not. And I went, he was like, he was telling me what the crap I was telling myself wasn't true. I said, where did this guy come from? He's a Buddha. Um, so he kind of like woke me up to that, that, and then Natalie and I had a conversation about it. Hi, hi Natalie. Um, and Dari, um, and all the sangha out there too. I apologize. <laughs> I said, you're, all, you're all equally, you're all equally important to me, and I do mean that. I do mean that. So, um, um, I got my train of thought there. Uh, let's see. So, um, okay. So, so I had this conversation with him, and it was an eye opener. And Nellie and I talked about it. And Natalie informed me of something I'm very embarrassed to tell you, but I will because it's the truth. She says to me, you know, you talk to yourself out loud. I say, oh, yeah, do I say anything interesting? And she said, yeah, you always say, what the heck is the matter with me? And I didn't even realize, and I'm pretty good. I really practice awareness. I don't know how that gets by me. That's so, I mean, but it just shows you, shows me how deep it is, how deep it is. 
And I'm guessing that I'm not that different from the rest of you in here. You know, we, we, so that's how it, it, it all started, you know, looking at that. Natalie also, I said to me, I said, well, I never hear you saying that. Just, I say it inside <laughs> to myself. So she makes self-deprecating remarks, too. Um, now, so the next thing I wanted to say is that um, this is some, 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 some observe. This seemed orderly when I put it together. If it's not orderly, it's, it's the best I can do right now. I, I apologize. Um, I'll do better next time. So over the years, this is something I noticed that um, it's not unusual when we engage in um, uh, Dharma encounter that what we sometimes present, especially if we're new and we're nervous, you know, what we, what, what we sometimes present is the story of who we think we are. And um, we mistake that story for who we really are. Stories filled with ideas and beliefs about why we're the way we are, all the reasons we can't be more. We set our own limitations. We, we define the boundaries of our prison cell. We can go this far and no further. Now, so just notice from time to time, and it's not a bad thing. Please, I'm not trying to shame anyone or make them feel badly. It's just... Um, the reality, we're presenting to this very important person, a teacher, how we see ourselves. And um, I frequently or sometimes hear a story of why I'm this way or why I can't go any further, and boom, that's, that's as far as you can go then. So um, so I'm, I'm going to ask you a little you know, later on, what, what, what are you most ashamed of? And maybe you can't name it. Um, you know, I think that even Dido felt shame. For those of you who, who knew him, you may remember he had a gap in his teeth, his two front teeth. And um, he would always smile like this. He would never do a full smile. And then, when the monastery was a little more financially stable, he went and had it fixed. And when I saw that, I thought to myself, Hmm, I wonder if he was bullied as a little boy. I wonder if kids made fun of him. I'll bet they did. You know, kids can be pretty mean. And I just thought to myself, wow, um, good for him for getting it fixed. You know? So, I mean, I don't know why I'm mentioning that. It's just that it, it, it made him um, more human to me because I always have him on this big pedestal. And, um, and if he felt shame, I guess what I'm saying is, so he felt shame, you know? It's not good, it's not bad. I mean, some people kind of like, oh, he's a Zen master, what is he going and doing that for? I heard people say that. And so, we, you know, that's all I have to say about that. Um, so, I'm gonna ask you, if, if you can, in, when I'm giving this little talk, to kind of stay <clears throat> focused on you, because um, <clears throat> we, tend to, we can tend to make this about kids and how to be nice to kids and how not to shame kids. And not everybody, <clears throat> excuse me, not everybody here has kids. So shame, 
what are you the most ashamed of? You don't have to say it out loud. No. Just, just take a minute and think, what am I the most ashamed of? What's the oldest shame I feel? Because there's lots of shame. And as I said, sometimes, in my experience, it's, I can't name it sometimes. I, sometimes I can't put a name to it, I, or I'm not clear exactly where it's coming from or how old it is. And at other times, I'm pretty ashamed of it you know, and can recognize it. So, so I asked you what you're ashamed of, and you might give it some thought. What did you do when you were a little kid? What was the message you got when you were a little kid? What did your boss say to you? What was the last time you had a, uh, an argument with someone you love? Because if anybody can hit that spot, it's your spouse, you know, because they know the weak points. And it's, it's not fighting fair. That's just my two cents. And I have to say I'm blessed that Natalie and I don't do that. You know, we don't, well, okay. So since I asked you, I'm going to tell you now what I'm ashamed of. <clears throat> so the thing I feel shame about is being an old lady. That's number one. And that's kind of new. And I always vowed that as I grew old, I would never fall for the, um, you know, the rap that, uh, you know, you're an old lady. But it's so pervasive in our society. You know, it's kind of like, well, I'm not sure how to articulate that. But it's, it's just there. You can't even say he's doing it or he's responsible or he said it. It's just like a, a collective thing that everybody starts viewing you when you get to be a certain age as an old lady. And I can tell you when I turned into an old lady, um, when I used to work at Ulster County Mental Health, it was a big building with lots of departments, lots of men, lots of women, and all the files were on lock and key, kept in this special room where you had to go in and you had to hand them over to the clerks. And, and we all had to wind up in that room at one time or another to get our files. And and always when I would go to get my files, if a guy was coming, he'd stop and let me go first. Then one day, the guys stopped, stopping for me and expected me to just get out of their way. I swear to God, I remember the day. It kind of hit me. They expected me to stop and let them go. And I thought, oh, well, it's a good thing I'm not interested in guys. And I was married, and I was married, so would never, ever, ever. No, no, I take, my, I take all my vows very seriously. So that was like a, a, a big thing, you know? And, and, um, and then I found that what I would do is I would semi-consciously fall into the role because it was the role that was being assigned to me. And I would catch myself, you know, doing insane things, like that remark that I made to the man, the bodhisattva, really, who said to me, no, you're not. I probably said something like, well, you know, I'm a little whatever, senile, I don't know what I said, but I could see me saying something like that. And so I got angry with myself because I'm saying, look how easily, and here I am trying really hard to be mindful and aware, and look how easily, easily I'm getting programmed, and I'm buying it, you know. And so I invite you all to look at that. And I'm not saying that men, you know, men don't have the same thing, but men are just as easily programmed, you know, when, when they get all, see, yeah, you know. And one of the things I, I notice about um, men that I, I feel badly about is um, that I see men who are retired who kind of are lost and don't know what to do, you know? 
because um, somehow, this is just my take, I don't want to offend anybody, I don't think this would offend though. Frown at me if I'm offending and I'll stop. So my experience with, with men is that um, uh, they're, they're raised in a different way, they're programmed and uh, just the way women are. And it seems to me that men live in a very competitive culture. I mean, so like every man can view every other man as a competitor for a job, a competitor for a spouse, competitor on a sports team. I know my son-in-law is very good. He's very good at having real friendships with men. But I, I don't know too many men who have real you know, who have it, and I think what it keeps them back is what they're told, you know, that um, they're told from, oh, women, men don't do emotions, but women do. Well, that's baloney, you know. Men have got just as many emotions as we do, but they're also culturally conditioned that it's a sign of weakness. I mean, we all heard it, you know, uh, big boys don't cry. What a terrible thing. What a terrible thing to rob a boy just because he's a boy, of his emotions. You can't cry? That's terrible. So these are the kind of messages that, that get sent out. Um, and that's our conditioning. The whole culture is conditioned that way. And that causes deep shame. So, you know, but that was one of the things I uh, noticed I was getting conditioned about. But the other thing, this is new, but the other thing is really very old, and that's being gay. And you might say, oh, come on, Gisha, you're always up there owning it and talking about it. Yeah, because you guys are safe. No one here is going to give me a hard time or say, you know, get out, you don't belong here. This is a safe place. And so that lets me fool myself into thinking I really am okay with it. But the truth is, I'm not, because... Um, Natalie tells the whole world we're gay. And I just walk away when she starts. <laughs> because um, I went to get my hair cut a couple of weeks ago, and the, the, the uh, haircutter, the, the hairdresser, said to me, oh, Natalie tells me we're together 43 years. And I go, I was like so embarrassed because Natalie outed me. She outs me to everybody. <laughs> no, really. And I'm like, I feel so uncomfortable. And so we were having the house painted, and, and you know, there's only one queen-size bed in that house, and the painter comes in and he's looking at the bed, and he says, oh, we'll do this room? He said, uh, okay, and where is your room? And, and, uh, and, and then he asked, oh, are you sisters? And I just kind of turned around and walked out, because I get embarrassed, I was so, I, actually it was shame. I just don't know how to claim that part of me. Um, and so, uh, um, to that later. So I, I, I wanted to talk about, um, in terms of shame, in my experience with it, when I was very little. Um, so of course the shame goes way back to childhood. I don't remember how old I was when I knew I liked girls. But, but it wasn't like them in a sexual way. I didn't even know what sex was. It was just an attraction, you know, and I wanted to give... Margaret, you go down to a bouquet of flowers because I didn't know what else you would, you would give, you know, or how to express that you liked somebody. And um, in 1952, Christine Jorgensen, a Danish-American woman, 
who was a man. They'd been in the U.S. Army. And her, her parents, his, I'm not sure that, well, I know what the pronoun ends up being she, but it started out as he. So he ended it in the army. He came to this country with his parents who were immigrants. They made their way. And he was just miserable, thinking of suicide at times. And um, he, he encountered some wonderful doctors in Denmark. And um, in, in three separate stages, they performed the surgery. And he was quite the sensation. No, then it was she. I'm sorry. I apologize. I'm getting the pronouns mixed up. But I know, what's, I know what they are. Um, so she, she came back to the United States, and she wrote her mother uh, a letter, because I'm not sure if the mother knew what was going on, but she had been gone a while. And she said, um, Mom, your sweet daughter is coming home. And the parents wrote the most beautiful letter back to her. So when she landed in New York, by the way, I was 10 years old when this was going on in 1952. And when she landed in New York, the press was all over her, and they wanted to hear about it. And now, this is coming from a 10-year-old, but not a dumb 10-year-old. I used to read the paper. And I, the, the thing that came through to me when I read the paper, and I'm not saying I couldn't have missed it, but what came to me was curiosity. This is amazing. Look at what's happened. I didn't hear any of the crazy hate that we hear today. It's just, that's how it seemed to me, you know. I didn't see, see anything different than that. And so um, I thought to myself, maybe this is a solution for my problem. Maybe that's what's wrong with me. Because I knew something was wrong, but I didn't know what it was. I couldn't name it. And um, so... Even before I had the words to express that I was gay, um, I somehow knew it. I didn't even know what it was. Now remember, guys, this is before the computer. This is before Google. You know, all you have were library books. There was nothing. So, um, so this was a particularly difficult time for me because, and that's I think when the, the real angst began because when I read about her being able to change her sex, I thought maybe I could do that too, but I didn't know where to go. So, um, you know, what happened was, uh, it was it was in, in incredibly uncomfortable for me because my body began to change. And I didn't have any girlfriends. I only had boys. And I was one of the boys. I mean, they would go to their mom and say, hey, mom, we're going to the movie. Who's going? Well, Joey, Maureen, and Bobby, and Mickey. And I was right in there with them. They didn't see me as a girl, and I didn't see myself as a girl either. And then all of a sudden, or maybe not so suddenly, this body started to change. And, and I was really frightened to death. I didn't want it to change. Then my mother comes home. because we would go to Mass every Sunday morning. And she insisted I wear, you know, Girls' clothes, you know, suit, whatever, little hat in my head. And one morning, she chased me around the bed because she was determined to put lipstick on me. And I said to her, Mom, don't. They will never play with me again. Don't you understand that? I was really, Bleh. And she says, oh, don't be ridiculous. You're turning into a young woman. I don't want to be a young woman. I said that to her. And she said, well, you are. And, um, and she said, things will never be the same again. And she was right. They didn't play with me anymore because I was starting into high school, 
and I was a frightened, scared, uh, very lost, very shame-filled little kid. Of course, this had to be a major sin. I mean, not a minor sin. We're not talking venial sin here. We're talking go to hell sin. How did I know that? Nobody said a word. So how did I pick up that message? Where did these messages come from? These are powerful messages about things we should be ashamed about. I never saw, I think I mentioned it before, I never saw two women kissing or two men kissing. I never saw anything like that. So I knew it had to be a terrible sin. And um, uh, so, so one day, first of all, I asked myself, who, who can I ask? Who can I talk to? You know, there, there wasn't anybody. I went through the list of all my aunts, and one seemed like a possibility that, that she would understand, but I just couldn't get the courage up because I didn't know what if it was so bad that she yelled, you know? So what I did was, um, uh, so this is in the 1950s, so this was the age of TV cowboys. And you need probably, I don't know if you heard of Roy Rogers, Gene Autry, no, okay. Well, you'll never hear of Hopalong Cassidy. He was, he was a, one of my favorite cowboys. And you'd always be sending away for something they were selling. And I sent away for the secret Hopalong Cassidy wallet, which had a secret compartment in it. That was the whole point of this wallet. It had a secret compartment. There was no money. I had no money in it. So I wrote out this heartfelt letter. And, and I wish I had saved it. I just remember it was full of angst, as only a 12 or 13 years old could be. And, and wanting to know, what do I do? Who am I? How do I fix this? You know? And I tucked it up neatly in the Papillon Cassidy wallet, and lo and behold, I lost the wallet. <laughs> and my mother gets a phone call saying, oh, Mrs. So-and-so found your wallet. Why don't you go over and pick it up? And I went, oh, maybe, maybe. This is how simplistic the thinking is. Maybe, maybe she'll have found the wallet and read the letter, and she can tell me what's wrong with me. You know? And so I went with my sister to get the, the, the letter, I mean the wallet, and she never found the letter. So, um, so that's my shame that goes back that far. Um, and you know, it kind of got worse in the sense when I was in the convent because um, you have to remember that these monastic traditions are very, very old in both, I guess, in, 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 the, in Catholicism, whether it's a priest, whether it's brothers or nuns. And so, so they were just doing what they had been doing for hundreds of years. Um, no one was trying to be, uh, you know, they weren't sadistic. This was just the way they thought you could find God. And you know that Buddha himself engaged on, a, a, I think, a six-year practice of extreme asceticism. So, um, and we didn't do anything like that, believe me. But, um, but they had all kinds of practices, and the whole point of them was to, no, shame, I was not saying embarrass you, it was to shame you into doing the right thing, you know, um, through shame. And so, um, this, this is an experiment. I'm gonna tell you this story. You'll laugh, and maybe you will, but I don't, this story makes me cry. And so I'm telling you in public, it's kind of like a, a way to see if it can free me and I can laugh at it too. Does that make sense, maybe? 
Well, I'm going to tell you the story anyway, and you'll see what happens. I'll either be crying up here or I'll be laughing. <laughs> okay, so, um, uh, so you never wanted to be told that the mistress of novices wanted to see you, <laughs> because it was always never good news. And in the convent, I was always breaking things because I was so nervous and anxious, and I didn't fit in. And um, um, so one day, the Mrs. Novices calls myself and another sister. I was Sister Mary Doris, and the other novice was Sister Mary Aiden. We were both 19 years old. And she sits us down, and she says, I don't know what I'm going to do with the two of you. And I'm like, okay, well, she usually, whenever this comes up, she, she usually says, I'm considering sending you home. That's always the next thing out of her mouth. But she didn't say that this time. She said, um, she said, I don't know what is the matter with you two, but you walk like farmers. And you talk like with your hands all the time. You talk fast. And you just don't act like nuns. Now picture, picture if you will, you must have met in, in the olden days maybe, a Sister Mary Nice, you know, she was the, the epitome of, you know, nundum, whatever, you know, like, like, I mean, I don't know, she, but so I was always, 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 I had so much energy, I was always running, and we were on the, the, the novitiates on the top floor of this really fancy schmancy boarding school for very wealthy girls from South America, we were way up in the, and we had to come down maybe four flights, I had perfected that run down the stairs so when I got to the landing I'd swing around you know it was such and I'd fly and, and inevitably the mother superior was mistress of novices would catch me because I couldn't contain it so um so she, so she said to the two of us she said I kid you not this really happened so help me God she said uh, I'm I'm hiring a um a charm teacher for the two of you. <laughs> oh no, I kid you not. So they were gonna teach me how to walk like a nun. So I kid you, we, we were walking around the novitiate, the two of us with books on our heads. We, she was teaching us how to speak, because I speak like I come from Brooklyn, and she was trying to get us to speak more differently, and we were learning the postures of how to sit down like a lady, and, and I mean, it just went on and on and on. And the other novices thought it was hysterical. You know, of course, I guess it was, but I was just so ashamed, you know. So I didn't think it was too funny. Um, and, and the only good, good thing I have to say is that um, I'm happy to report that the charm coach resigned. <laughs> she said there wasn't anything she could do. So we were too far gone, <laughs> really. So, um, but it kind of left this awful feeling, you know, like I'm not a good nun, I don't belong here. So, okay, so, so that's, those are my, those are the things I'm ashamed about. And, um, okay, so now I'm going to talk about, um, you know, who taught us to feel shame? How did we learn we were broken and unworthy of love? How old were we when we first felt it? One month. You were one month old when you first felt it. A baby at one month can feel what the parent is feeling. Um, so if you have an anxious, overwhelmed, exhausted, angry parent, what's the infant experiencing? I remember 
one night um, when Katie, my daughter, was about a year old, and um, my husband was teaching someplace, and he would only come home on weekends. So it was me and Katie, a one-year-old, about, um, with no family nearby, and all the other mothers were much younger than me, so I didn't have any really social network. So I spent uh, most of the day playing with her and doing errands and keeping the house clean. And um, at th this particular night, I remember it so vividly, because she didn't usually do this. Although, well, maybe she was doing it in a yeah, because I was exhausted, that was the point. Um, she, sometime in the middle of the night, she wakes up screaming and just wouldn't stop. And I would pick her up and I try to put her down. And the minute I put her down, she'd scream again. And you know, I was like ready to blow my brains out because I was exhausted. I, I wanted to sleep. Uh, I didn't know, you know, and I was angry. And I, was, I felt overwhelmed. There really wasn't any support. And I thought, what am I doing wrong here? You know, why is she crying? I was so desperate, I climbed into the crib with her. I did. And, you know, she, and I'd hug her, and, and she would start screaming again, and I'd get up. So it just went on all night. And I remember feeling such rage, such rage, that in that moment I could understand, I could understand how a woman, or maybe a man, could take a kid and smash their head against the wall. I could understand it. That's how over the top it was. And it was only by the grace of God that I had some, um, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, but maybe conditioning or whatever, just enough strength to know you don't do that. You don't do that. And it was helpful in a way because when I was a social worker, and I, would, I found it hard working with kids who abused parents who abused their kids, but I always remembered that, that just a step away and I could have done that. I'm capable of it, in other words, you know? Um, but you don't because, uh, because you have your, uh, your, uh, oh, Shugan, what am I looking for? You know the word. Moral compass. Thank you, Shugan. Moral compass. <laughs> okay. So, um, so, okay, so, so you feel shame about that, you know. Um, so these are some of the things I felt shame about. But, but really, I, I really feel I did my best with, with Katie. Um, so, so the thing I wanted to talk about is, is a little bit more on, um, you know, about how we learn it. Uh, as I said, um, they've done studies, you know, to... to and, and they're pretty sure that kids at one month old, you know, know what you are feeling. So what's the child feeling when you're anxious, overwhelmed, exhausted, and angry? They have no word for it, which is pretty amazing. They have no word for it. This is why sometimes, you know, we'll say, we'll have an experience, and we can't maybe name the feeling sometimes. But we experienced it. There's, there's so much stuff that we, well, you get what I'm saying, right? That, that, that the, we experienced these horrific emotions when we had no names for them, and we don't forget them, you know? Um, and they, they, 
you know, they fill us with shame. They can fill us with shame. So, um, and then what happens when the child gets a little older and they hear things like, why can't you be more like your brother? What's wrong with you? What a stupid thing to do. Don't you know any better? What are you crying about? I'll give you something to cry about. You should be ashamed of yourself. Sound familiar to anybody in here? You don't have to raise your hands, but thank you. Me and one other fellow, okay, we're going to need a lot of therapy. So uh, it does help. It does help. No, but this is, what I'm trying to say is this is not so unusual. I mean, up, you know, I mean, you know, the parents are overwhelmed. They're, 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 they're tired. Uh, they have too many kids, or not too many kids, but they have their hands full. And it's very stressful. And they sometimes don't realize, they just don't realize that you cannot say these things to kids because each little child is so precious, so gentle, so tender, so vulnerable. And they remember, they feel it, and they internalize that to some form of, I'm no good, I'm broken. And I certainly experienced that. I'm sure a lot of people did. It's not because this is where shame comes from initially. We, we learn it very young from, from uh, the adults in our life. And, it's, and I'm not saying our parents were bad because there's such a thing, you know, as there's no, no, there's no such thing as perfect parenting. If each of us was perfectly parented, we wouldn't be able to function in this world because by perfect parenting, you mean mirroring the child exactly. Oh, oh he's crying. Let me pick him up. No, let them just learn that you will come. See, it's good. The expression you want is good enough parenting, the, where, where the, the child gets to experience some distress. Otherwise, he's you know demanding, you know, fill them up, make them better. So there, there's a, there's a happy medium in there, where when the child is left alone, I don't mean the mother's not in the house, but I mean in in the the child is in the, in the crib. And the mother's making supper, and he's crying, and she's trying to make it fast so she can get him fed. And so she goes in, but not immediately. That's good enough parenting. Leaving him crying for hours, you know, that's just torture. Um, so that's what I'm trying to say. We, we, you want to hit the, the sweet spot. You know, and it's, it's a big bell curve, so there's room on either side. And not all kids are exactly alike. Um, so I think that what I wanted to say was, um, oh, it's later than I thought. I'm sorry. Um, OK, so I want to tell you that the things that, that we were taught when, about ourselves when we were children, they're not true. They're not true. But they are the foundation upon which we learn to build our lives. We, we are born, I, never, I had a hard time with this, but I think I understand it now. We are born perfect and complete. You know? Because we, we don't come into this life, if I understand it correctly, we come in uh, with, with karma, but karma is action. But we don't come in with our conditioning, that's my understanding, I believe. You know? um, so if I'm wrong, you'll hear it, you'll hear it. But I think that's the way it is. So, so um, 
So it's like a month after we're born, a month, that the conditioning starts. It's a miracle any of us have survived to be this old, really. Um, so so it, it's difficult. It's really difficult to let go of our ideas about who we are because they're deeply ingrained. And as Dido used to say, you know, we're living in a, a furnished, opulent prison cell. It's comfortable enough because it's the, only, it's the only reality we know. And we can spend a lot of time making the cell comfortable. You know, like in my day, it would be, um, I don't know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. You know, people would distract themselves with. And now you can throw in um, the other part of it, uh, electronic stuff. Yeah. Um, so... All right. Yeah. You know, maybe over time, or maybe in practice, we'll begin to suspect um, that something's off. What's wrong with me? Uh, can somebody fix me? Sorry, no. There's nothing wrong with you. There never was nothing wrong with you. We're all perfect and complete, lacking nothing. You just don't know it. And at this point, if Dido was sitting here, he would tell the most remarkable story in the world, which I, we have to get that on tape, because only he can tell it. It's the story of the ugly duckling. And, so those of you who have been here a while know it. He would tell it in great detail about this miserable, unhappy duckling that was hanging out with all these ducks. And the duckling just didn't fit in. And he went, he, he was miserable. Something was wrong with him. He didn't know what it was. So he, he went, I think he took gestalt. And then he tried, then he tried yoga. And he tried all these different, uh, you know, uh, whatever, help classes and our classes, and then one day, um, I forget whether he was saw himself in the water or whether he's, maybe he, was that it? He saw himself in the water? Yeah, he saw a reflection of himself in the water, and he looked down and he said, I'm not an ugly duckling, I'm a swan. I've always been a swan. I never knew it, because I believed these other things about myself. So you're all beautiful swans. Really, you beautiful swans. Uh, so, so the, the last thing I would maybe talk about, uh, just five minutes, I'll be quick. Um, okay, so how can we practice this? You know, I don't want to leave you all hanging here. Now, I don't have all the answers. I, I only know what I know and what my teacher has taught me. Um, so the first thing you have to, to deal with this and what's this? Our conditioning, okay? The very first thing is you have to have courage. You have to have courage to look because I'm telling myself, yeah, I'm not afraid of being gay. Meanwhile, I'm sneaking around every time Natalie tells anybody I'm gay. Oh, really? And I'm very free to tell you I'm gay. Well, what does that say? I'm not in touch with the fact that I'm really ashamed of it, right? How else can you interpret that? So back in 1992, October session, Shugan, when he was just ordinary Shugan, 
gave up. Now he's extraordinary. So, so uh, he, gave a one, uh, he gave a wonderful Dharma talk in this session, and I remembered it. And he talked about um, the six kinds. Uh, he said that he gave a talk on the Buddha's, I think it was the Buddha's six kinds of courage. And, but he focused on one uh, particular form of courage. The courage to reveal ourselves to ourselves. So that's the first thing we need to do. Just, you know, and, and he heavens didn't fall down when I realized I still had unresolved stuff. Um, it's, if anything, it's making me freer to know it now. So, it w so, but that's what I'm saying you have to do first. You have to, the courage to reveal ourselves to ourselves. And the other thing, the most important thing, I, oh, this is pretty important, is you have to have awareness. I remember once going into Dido and saying to him, Dido, I discovered this, I saw something, you know, I realized something I was doing. I said, what do I do now? He says, nothing. Awareness is everything. Everything he told me. And it turned out that it was true because, because once you see something, you can't unsee it. So if I'm engaging in unhealthy or, or uh, hurtful behavior toward myself or others, but now I see it, then I begin to feel regret. You know? And so there's the possibility there of me changing. So that's why awareness is so important. And then the last thing, I think, which is really, really, really important, is that um, we need to have, all of us, great compassion for ourselves. And I'm talking about the folks who've been wounded and uh, to be able to forgive, if we can. And that's a big if. Sometimes, you know, people, and I'm not saying you, you have to, I'm saying you'll feel more free if you can, but um, if you can't forgive, um, maybe pull it back a step and aspire, you know, visualize the person and say, I, I can't forgive you. I may never forgive you. I hope perhaps someday, maybe I might be able to. And if you, I'm, no promises, I don't know how that's going to work out for you, but it's, it's, a, it's a tool to, to try. So, um, so the suffering of our lives is not outside ourselves. We didn't plant the seeds of our suffering, but we have nonetheless nourished them for many years because we believed the lies, the conditioning, we didn't create the lie we tell ourselves about ourselves, but it is up to us to put it to rest and free ourselves. And that's the good news. We don't need to wait for someone else to free us because the truth is only you can set you free. Only I can set me free. No one is coming to save you. And isn't that glorious news? Because God forbid you were waiting. They'd never show up. How do you know? You'd be a, a helpless, suffering person. So thank God only you can do it. I hope you can see that, that that's a good thing, you know. Um, only we can set us free. And, and as Dido so frequently reminded us, when he would end the talk, I would love when he'd end the talk this way. 
I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. So, Thanks so much for listening. For meditation supplies such as cushions, incense, liturgical instruments, dharma books, and more, visit monasterystore.org. Support for your spiritual practice at home.